Welcome to This Week in Brattleboro History, brought to you by the Brattleboro Historical Society and the Brattleboro Area Middle School. Not all stories of Brattleboro's past have happy endings. Today we are going to speak of connections between Brattleboro's early development, slavery, and Indian conflict. In 1757, a family moved from Fort Dummer and relocated north to a terrace just above and to the west of what is now known as the Retreat Meadows. The Moore family consisted of 57-year-old Fairbank Moore, his son, 25-year-old Benjamin Moore, Ben's wife, 28-year-old Margaret, and four children. The Moores had a dispute with the commander of Fort Dummer over who would reside in the protected homes inside the fort walls. The Moore family decided to leave the fort and strike out on their own because of its dispute with the commander. They built a log cabin in an area that had long been an Abenaki gathering place. It is now the location of the retreat farm. Native Americans grew corn and berries in the meadows, hunted animals along the edge of the woods, and gathered fish where the West and Connecticut rivers joined. These lands were vitally important to the survival of the Abenaki in the area. In March of 1758, the Moore cabin was attacked by Native Americans. Fairbank and Ben were killed, and Ben's wife and children were taken captive. The Abenaki made it clear that they did not want Europeans from Fort Dummer moving further north onto their food-producing lands. As time went on, the Europeans did not listen to the Abenaki and continued to force their way north. In 1795, John Holbrook moved to Brattleboro with his family, buying an old mill and a house on the Whetstone Brook, where it joins the Connecticut River. Holbrook entered into a partnership with a merchant in Hartford, Connecticut, and started running the first flat-bottom boats between Brattleboro and Hartford. For many years, these boats were the most profitable way to transport heavy freight between Hartford and Brattleboro. Holbrook owned the Highlander, a boat that could carry 24 tons of freight, and was the largest on the river. He became successful importing and exporting goods between here and the slave islands of the West Indies. He also built a slaughterhouse on the islands in the Connecticut River. The large quantities of beef, pork, and hams from his slaughterhouse were dried, cured, placed in barrels, and shipped to the West Indies. An advertisement in the Reporto newspaper from May 1800 informs readers that cotton, salt, mackerel, salt fish, rum, Snuff, brown sugar, and gin will be arriving in Holbrook store via flatboat from the West Indies within the next few days. John Holbrook made his fortune trading cured meats to the slaves of the West Indies and bringing slave-produced goods from the West Indies to New England. There was no bank in Bradbury during the early 1800s, so Holbrook financed many of the early industries along the wet stone brook himself. The origins of much of Main Street were financed through the profits of trades with the slave islands of the West Indies. By 1811, Holbrook sold his Brattleboro businesses to Francis Goodhue. Goodhue expanded the Connecticut River trade by adding a corn whiskey distillery near the spot where the present bridge connecting Brattleboro to Hinsdale was located. Slavery continued in the West Indies, and this practice coincided with the largest profits realized by flatboat owners plying the Connecticut River at the time. While from the beginning, Vermont's constitution had put clear restrictions on slavery, slavery's practice in Vermont were cloudy. 
In early 1800s, Brattleboro's royal Tyler cleared a fellow Vermont Supreme Court judge of keeping a slave from 17 years in town of Windsor, Vermont, despite overwhelming evidence that a female slave was part of a judge's household. In the 1830s, there was real conflict in Brattleboro over the topic of slavery. Judge Royal Tyler's son, Edward, had attended Yale College and become an abolitionist. In 1837, the first meeting of the Anti-Slavery Society was called in Brattleboro, and Edward Tyler was the scheduled speaker. Prominent Brattleboro businessmen were opposed to this meeting and arranged for two cannon to be set up outside the Elliott Street meeting hall. The cannon and clanging pots and pans were used to disrupt the meeting and make clear that people were not happy with this organization establishing itself in town. The three businessmen accused of organizing the disruption were Paul Chase, Henry Smith, and John Holbrook, the son of John Holbrook mentioned earlier. Paul Chase operated the largest local hotel and later held the office of sheriff. Henry Smith also operated a restaurant hotel business and later became the town's postmaster, and John Holbrook operated a printing and publishing business. These businessmen claimed that being pro-slavery was being pro-American. It was patriotic because the only way the South would remain in the Union was if slavery continued. So being pro-United States meant being pro-slavery. Each of these businessmen also personally benefited from the trade with Southern slave-owning states. In 1845, the water cure became another economic plus for Brattleboro. This business also benefited from southern slave plantation visitors. Plantation owners would travel north to Brattleboro to visit the world-famous water cure and would be attracted to the comfortable summer weather. Slave owners like the Stoddards of Georgia and General Buckner of Louisiana built mansions in town as a result of visiting the water cure. Their money supported the growth of Brattleboro. According to Abby Fuller, daughter of Julius S.D. and wife of Levi Fuller, Brattleboro, at the beginning of the Civil War, had business interests in the South. Ira Miller's carriages and wagons were sold to Southern planters on account of their thorough workmanship and durability. Our water cures were patronized largely by the people of Southern wealth. They brought some of their slaves with them. Gay, turbaned black nurses were a common sight on our streets in my childhood. She went on to name four slave-owning families who built homes here, and acknowledged the many slave owners from the Charleston, South Carolina area who summered in Brattleboro. Another family that moved to the area after visiting the water cure was the Ballastiers. You may remember the name because Carolyn Ballastier married Rudyard Kipling, and together they built Nalaka. What you may not know is the Ballastiers made their money first by involving themselves in the Martinique sugar and slave trade, and later profiting from the sale of Indian lands near Chicago, Illinois. This allowed Carolyn's grandfather to retire to Brattleboro, a wealthy man, while still in his 50s. Sometimes we like to think that African slavery was a problem for the southern part of the United States, and Indian eradication was a problem for the western part of the United States, and neither really had a history here in Brattleboro. This week in Brattleboro History, these stories speak of another reality. Please join us next week for another story from Brattleboro's past.